All right. Uh, well, today we're back in uh, Judges. Uh, we're going to have a little three-week Advent series starting next week. Uh, we'll walk through uh, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Uh, but this week uh, we continue in Judges. We started back in Judges uh, in September. And uh, it Judges in the Old Testament. And um, uh, we, you can catch up with us if you need to. Um, but today's passage is different than the ones we've been looking at. So uh, let's read it together. I'll pray and we'll get started. Chapter 50, or verse 50. Uh, then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. And Abimelech, there, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we uh, as moderns read that, um, as Westerners, as first world people, and we think, oh, how primitive. And Lord, I, I pray that you, uh, through your Holy Spirit, would show us uh, the relevance of this passage uh, for our lives. Uh, Lord, forgive us for our cynicism. Uh, forgive us for our unbelief. Uh, forgive us uh, for our, our wicked ways. We need your mercy now more than ever. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, even in that reading, uh, you, you'll see this good versus evil uh, tension in there. Verse 1, uh, you see the good, you see Tola, and uh, the bad, you see it uh, really all the eight verses before it. <laughs> Abimelech being uh, the chief of the bad guys. And uh, we all love a good, uh, good versus evil storyline, don't we? Um, that's, why, uh, the, the, that's why superhero movies are massively popular. Um, it's why people get all bent out of shape about a sports rivalry. Um, my team is the good team. The rival is the evil team. Uh, the cats are good and the cards are evil. But how do we think about good versus evil personally? Who's the good guy? Who or what is our enemy? Uh, how do we locate the enemy as Christians? Is God the good guy and Satan the bad guy? Well, the answer uh, to that from the Bible is yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, God is the good guy and Satan's the bad guy because the New Testament describes Satan in very frightening terms. The New Testament calls him a lion who roams around looking for someone to devour. Uh, the whole of Scripture calls him a liar, calls him a deceitful. 
John 10 says he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. So is he the bad guy? Yes. But although God's a good guy and Satan's a bad guy, it's more complicated than that. The Bible also gives us another enemy. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 says that death is our last enemy. On this side of the garden, this side of the Garden of Eden, when we've been kicked out through the story of Adam and Eve, uh, death is what haunts us. It puts fear in us at the very thought of it as we think about our own death, as we think about the death of those we love. But these enemies, Satan and death, are on the outside and they should cause us a real amount of fear. But the one that should cause us just as much fear, if not more, is the enemy that we find within ourselves. But why are we more afraid of the enemies like Satan and death that are outside than sin within ourselves? Why is that? Well, think about the causes of death. And I'm talking about real death here. Uh, not, I mean, spiritual death is real death. But uh, think about a physical death. Uh, think about the ways in which you could die. What scares you the most? What options available to you, the ways in which you could die, scare you the most? Uh, I would bet uh, that the first, one of the first ones is uh, dying in a car wreck. And then the next one, real close, if not before it, is being murdered. Uh, but let me tell you some statistics here. Um, only 16,000 Americans uh, died of murder in 2016. 37,000 uh, people were killed in a car wreck. That's a little over 50,000 people. Uh, they, they should scare us, but uh, you know what killed 600,000 people in 2016? Cancer. I bet not many of us, maybe some of us, if it's part of our past or if it's part of an immediate family member, we do fear cancer in some really serious ways. But most of us don't, grow, don't go around scared to death of cancer. See, just like Satan is on the outside and death's on the outside, they really are scary. They are very real. And I don't want to minimize the danger of death and Satan any more than I want to minimize the danger of car wrecks and murder. I'm simply just wanting to highlight the threat that many of us don't give much credit to is the one that we're most likely to die from. And that threat is the threat from within, the enemy within. We are our own worst enemy. See, God's people were in the same position in the book of Judges. We've seen them have plenty of external enemies, if you've been with us the last several weeks. We've seen that uh, they have foreign oppressor after foreign oppressor after foreign oppressor. They've had the Midianites with Gideon. They've had the Philistines. They've had the Canaanites. They've had the king of Mesopotamia. But in chapter 9 of Judges, we do not have a foreign oppressor. There is none. But there is an enemy within the camp. There is an enemy from within God's people, and it's their leader. It's Abimelech. So what I want to show us today in, in chapter 9, I know we only have uh, the, the, the end of the chapter here, so I'm going to summarize this, and you guys can go read it later. But a couple weeks ago, we read the whole chapter uh, of ch chapter 7. It took us forever. Uh, so you guys can just trust me here. Uh, and, and, if you, and, and if I was wrong, you can come holler at me. But um, I really want us to look at the enemy within the individual. Uh, the enemy within the individual is verses 1 to 21. I want to see the enemy within the community. It's verses 22 through 49. And then the conquering of the enemy in verses 50, uh, 9, chapter, 9 verse 50 to chapter 10 verse 1. Uh, so let's look at the enemy within the individual. Um, we find out at the end of chapter 8 uh, a little bit about Abimelech. Uh, we find out that Abimelech is one of Gideon's sons. Uh, but he's one of Gideon's sons it, 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 through a concubine. 
Now, concubine is not a word you've probably used this week. It's not one that I've used uh, this week, other than in this sermon manuscript. Um, uh, but a concubine is, 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 is not married uh, to, uh, her, to her husband. A concubine is just a woman who lives with a man, but has, has a lower status than that man's wife or wives. And Abimelech is such a son to a concubine. And this is really important for our passage because we see that Abimelech, from the very onset, from, his, from the onset of his birth, he's an outsider. He's an outsider even within his own family because he's got 70 brothers who come from the wives of his father. See, he's illegitimate and he doesn't stand to inherit anything. And as the story unfolds, we see a man who knows that the only way he's going to get anything is if he goes after it. He knows he's not going to be given any breaks in life. And his dream is to be the head man, just like his father Gideon. But between him and his dream, he has 70 obstacles. They're his brothers. One on 70 is bad odds, so he's got to form an alliance. Well, his mother, the concubine, uh, is from this city uh, that, that, that is full of the people of God. We'll find out why that's important in just a little bit. But his mother is from Shechem. He goes to Shechem. He goes to his, his, his family members, his extended family, and says, hey, I need to broker a deal with you. Uh, would you rather be led by the 70 sons of Gideon, who you're not related to, or would you rather be, um, be led by one person who just happens to be your relative? And they said, oh, the second option. He says, great, because I'm your relative. And they said, great, well, we, we want to follow you. And he says, hey, can you, uh, can, can you get some support for me? And they said, absolutely. So they go back and they, they go to the leaders of Shechem, the power brokers, and, uh, and, and, and they, they collect some money. And the, way, the place they get this money is from the temple. Uh, the, the temple is to Baal. Uh, the people of God aren't worshiping God. They're worshiping uh, a pay, the pagan god of Baal. And they go to the offering plate. They take out 70 shekels and they give it. Uh, and and, and they, they have given it to Abimelech. And Abimelech uh, goes and he hires a bunch of henchmen. Uh, he hires some roughnecks. He hires uh, these crude folks who form his squad. And in this squad, this is a murdering squad, and they take out his 70 brothers. So he becomes very successful. I mean, he, he had a plan. He accomplished it. And now he becomes the leader of the Shechemites. He's turned into his good old dad. Problem is, is that one of his younger brothers fled. One of his younger brothers got out. Didn't he? Wasn't killed. His name was Jotham. He was the youngest one. And he get, he gets out. And even though Jotham stands very little chance to ever become the head honcho, uh, because of his age and relationship to his brothers, uh, he is furious at his half brother Abimelech because his, his brother Abimelech has committed this uh, uh, this treachery, unspeakable treachery. So what Jotham does is he speaks out against Abimelech. He speaks out against him even at the risk of his own life. And he does so by giving a parable in verses 7 to 15. And in this parable, you have a group of trees. And the group of trees goes to the olive tree. Then it goes to the fig tree. And then it goes to the vineyard, to the wine, to, to, to the grape vineyards. And these trees go to each of these three parties in the parable and say, hey, the trees are saying this, hey, uh, uh, olive tree, will you rule over us? Olive tree says no. These trees go to the fig tree and say, hey, will you rule over us? Fig trees say no. Uh, the, the trees over here go to the wine vineyards and say, hey, will you rule over us? They all say no. But there becomes a fourth option. And the trees go to the fourth option, and it's bramble. It's a prickly vine. The trees go to the bramble and say, hey, will you rule over us? 
And the bramble says, yes, but I will devour you and you will devour me. Jotham goes on and explains what this parable means. And he says, hey, the bramble, that's Abimelech. He's going to end up devouring you, the people of Shechem, God's people. And in return, you're going to devour Abimelech. You're going to devour your leader. So do you see the difference between Abimelech and the other leaders we've looked at? Now, we've looked at a bunch of buffoons, for the most part, uh, who have been leaders. But what's been true of all these buffoons we've looked at is that they've been called by God. They've not sought the role of leading God's people. Where Abimelech, he grasps for it himself. See, his authority that he exercises is really not one of ruling or delivering for the people's good. Rather, his authority is more like bullying. It's more just the exercise of raw power. And Abimelech, all throughout, verses 1 to 57, doesn't even pretend to be obeying God. His corruption is obvious and it's unsettling to us as we read the narrative in chapter 9. See, Abimelech's own worst enemy was himself. His biggest threat was him. But he was a massive success. He was the head honcho of all the Shechemites. He's the one who put himself in that position. So you would call him a success. He set a lofty goal. He achieved it. He hit what he was aiming at. But along the way, Abimelech had to murder to get what he wanted. And in Abimelech, what we see is the classic example of a successful fool. See, it's possible to be successful while being a fool. And as you read the story of Abimelech, it should cause us to do some self-analysis. It should cause us to ask some questions. What are my goals? What are my aspirations? How would I define success? I know for many of us, we say it in terms of career, we're, we're young people getting out and starting our professional careers. But even those of us who've been working for a while, I know that if, if someone asked you, hey, why did you choose a career that you chose? Or how have you ended up where you are, you're at? I'm sure you would say something really nice, like, I just wanted to help people. Well, all week long, I've been trying to think, is there a profession I can think of that's uh, legal, anyways? Um, is, is there a profession I can think of that doesn't help people? I began to think about our people at Lexmark. Uh, you say, well, I mean, Lexmark, that does, the, the, uh, those are, are the soft sciences, uh, would say, uh, how can printers really help people? Well, gosh, I'm really glad that my printer worked. Aren't you? If you're at Lexmark, you really can do, you really can help people by making good printers. And I know that you can say the same thing about your profession. But when I, when I think about the reason that, that we really did choose the career that we're in, I, I think it's more about the security of the position. It very well could be about the respect that comes with the profession of your choice. It really can be about the earning potential. And security and respect and money, they're not bad, but they're motivations that are grounded within the self. See, remember, we are our own worst enemy. I think another important question that we should ask ourselves is, what have we been willing to sacrifice in order to get what we've achieved? What debris lies in our path on our way to success? See, Abimelech had the bodies of 70 of his brothers behind him in his path. And you probably, you're not going to kill 70 people. I'm not going to kill 70 people. But I bet you've been willing to sacrifice for it. I bet you've been willing to sacrifice oodles of time, 
gobs of money, and important relationships, all to achieve what you achieve. But is it worth it? Do the sacrifices you've made say more about your ego or more about the glory of God? See, God's glory, it, it was nowhere on Abimelech's radar. Uh, you, you'll see that if you read the chapter 9. Not, God doesn't come from his lips in all 57 verses. And that's how we know. That's how we know the enemy of self is alive and well in us. That God's nowhere to be found in our own consciousness. See, this is the enemy within the individual. But let's look at the enemy within the community. Verses 22 through 49. Uh, in, in verses 1 through 21, really the spotlight's exclusively shining on Abimelech. Where 22 through 49, we begin to see the dumpster fire that comes from God's people who are naive and who accept unqual- an unqualified leader. See, Jotham's prediction that they would devour one another begins to come true in verses 23 through 49 as the Shechemites begin to plot against Abimelech. They set these ambushes along the road in hopes of harming Abimelech. This insurrection is arising from within the Shechemites, and it's led by a guy named Gaal. And Gaal uh, is, is telling about this plan to ambush Abimelech, and Abimelech has somebody on the inside, Zebul, Z-E-B-U-L. Zebul's on the inside. He hears about the insurrection. He goes and tells Abimelech about the coming insurrection. So Abimelech, uh, he, he, he kills many people in Shechem. He doesn't kill everybody, but he kills a lot of people. The fighting stops. Uh, the, the rest of the Shechemites go to bed. And when they wake up the next morning, they're going out to their fields, is what the text says. They're just going to work. It's, it's a normal, they're sad, but life's got to go on. And as they're on their way to the fields, uh, Abimelech has set for them what the Shechemites had set for Abimelech. He'd set an ambush. So he kills a whole bunch more Shechemites as they're on their way to work. And there's 1,000 people left in Shechem. That's it, 1,000 people. And so they hide in their tower. They hide in the tower of Baal. Of Baal. In other words, they've got this uh, pagan monument in the middle of their city. And so they're going to go take refuge in it. They think, we'll be safe here. But Abimelech is smart. And what he does is that he burns the tower and burns all 1,000 people up in it. It's terrible. But shouldn't the Shechemites see this coming? I mean, after all, this is a guy who killed 70 of his own brothers so that he could rule over them. They've already seen his character flaws before he ever killed a soul within, within them, within the Shechemites. Remember, this is the same guy whose little brother came out and spoke against him. So you would think that any sane community would have noticed the foolishness of Abimelech. But to make this even worse is that these Shechemites aren't like the Moabites. These Shechemites are not like the Philistines. These Shechemites are not like the Midianites. See, Shechem is a city with only God's people in it. They are God's chosen people. So not only did did they excuse his 70 murders, not only did they ignore the prophecy that came from his brothers, but they're also part of God's people. And they didn't see this coming? How was this? Well, I've already given you two hints. Uh, the two hints were, they gave him money from the, from the pagan plate <laughs> to kill his 70 brothers. They were, they were worshiping pagan gods. And then you, you saw them, the Shechemites, they all hid in a pagan monument. So you see what's going on here. They're just not seeing straight. They have clouded vision because they've lost their vision of the God who's called them. 
the Shechemites are in a really, really bad place, and they didn't even know it. Uh, William Shire. Uh, William Shire was an American journalist out a few years ago, and he was stationed uh, in Europe as a, journal as a journalist uh, for about 10 years before World War II and then during World War II. Uh, and he's written one of the leading firsthand accounts of all these events, and it's called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you know, Hitler's Rule. Because he, since he was there for those 10 years before the war really got started, he got to see how things developed in Germany to get where they ended up. And in 1934, multiple years before the war started, here's what he wrote. He said, he, um, William Shire, the journalist, he was at a speech that Hitler gave in Nuremberg. Here's what he said. The words he, Hitler, uttered, the thoughts he expressed often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately, and it deepened and intensified as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. In such a state, it seemed to me they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. His German listeners were lapping up every word as the utter truth. End quote. So you see, it's easy to fall for a convincing leader. All societies are prone to the fate of Germany, but the same is true within the church. We're naive and we're gullible when we veer from God ourselves, and when we, when, when we do, we will fall for ungodly leaders every time. See, in general, godly people will follow a godly leader, and ungodly people will only follow an ungodly leader. Just like we eat food that tastes good to us, we only follow leaders who sound good to us. And Jesus calls these ungodly leaders, he calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. You think they're a sheep, but they're actually a wolf, and they're going to devour you. This is what Abimelech did. Paul calls uh, these people false prophets, and he tells them to castrate themselves. Now, uh, you, you, that, that's, I know that's gory, um, but that's, that's just how destructive they can be. They will destroy our communities when we blindly follow ungodly leaders. So you see the enemy that's within ourselves. We saw what Abimelech, who the person was, who he was. Then we kind of see who the Shechemites were. So we need some good news, and that's what we need to see in the last part was printed in your bulletin. And you see there in verse 50 that Abimelech, he continues his rampage. He's wiped through the Shechemites onto the next town that he was, he, he thinks that they've joined in this rebellion too. So he goes to Thebes and he captures them in a tower just like he did Shechem. And you've got to think, he's feeling really confident. He's thinking, man, just days before, I had a bunch of people in the tower. I lit them all on fire and I won. All right, I got these people in the tower again. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to light it up. But before he can light it up, he gets a little bit too close and he gets the surprise of verse 53 that I'm sure you caught. Verse 53, and a certain woman, don't you love that? A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. 
Now, we could just end the chapter, end it there, couldn't we? I mean, he doesn't quite die. He's like 99% dead, and his, and his uh, arm bear kills him off because then we killed by a woman. That's an interesting point. But we really could just say, all right, Abimelech's dead. That's the end of the story. But something happens right there. The narrator has a few more words for us. He's got to interpret what's just happened in theological terms, verses 56 and 57. It says, thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. You see it all throughout and all throughout chapter nine. There's a certain quietness about God's judgment. His judgment didn't come through some inbreaking miracle here. Rather, he just used evil men to kill evil men. Because within evil, there's just no fellowship. There's no lasting cohesion in the community of evil. Because in the end, evil men will cannibalize one another. But Abimelech's not the final word for God's people. He sends a rescuer to him. Judge, uh, this is why we included verse 1 with Tola. You see it? After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola. Now, Tola didn't save Israel from any surrounding nations like all the other judges have up to this point. The person that Tola delivered the Israelites from was themselves. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's what you need. And that's what I need. We need a leader who's going to rescue us from our failings, who's going to rescue us from the ambitions of our own hearts, and who's going to, who's going to, who's going to rescue us from the division and the strife that exists among us. Can't you hear echoes of Christmas here? Matthew 1.21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, God's people in the first century, when, when, when they heard the angel say that, they thought, yes, the promised Messiah was going to come, and, and for he shall save his people from Rome. Hallelujah. But Jesus didn't come first and foremost to save them from Rome. He came to save them from their sins. And he's done that for you and me too. See, all of us, we were destined for God's judgment, just like the Shechemites, just like Abimelech. We were going to cannibalize one another. But God's grace and his justice, they met at the cross of Jesus. And it was there that justice was satisfied when Jesus took the millstone of God's wrath that we deserved for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He rose from the grave to conquer death and Satan, and yes, even this great enemy from within. And now through his Holy Spirit and his rich grace, he's inviting you and me to enjoy the victory he's achieved. See, brothers and sisters, you don't have to live in the kingdom of self, where you always have to be right, where you always have to be strong, and where you always have to be powerful. You can live in the kingdom where you're free to point the finger at yourself as the world's greatest problem. If you're like me, then you're quick to point the finger out here at other individuals, maybe another denomination, maybe our secular culture, maybe the other political party. But the gospel of grace allows us to point our fingers at ourselves. So the next time 
that you want to make an accusation, pause and realize that the problem may very well not be in them as much as it is in you. And the good news of the gospel is that we can be rescued from this enemy of self by our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you're so patient with us <laughs> as we uh, do battle, um, as you've done battle with us. And Lord, we realize that this battle of self is killing us day after day after day. And Lord, may we wake up to this reality. And may, may you set us free to point the finger at ourselves. Not so that we can condemn ourselves as much as we can take the next step and realize that you've already conquered that enemy once and for all. So Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.